Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nicolas Cage has always been a fan of Elvis Presley's. Cage's laconic drawl is no doubt inspired by Presley. In Wild at Heart, a David Lynch film released in 1990, Cage plays Sailor Ripley, a criminal on the run who favors snakeskin jackets. Cage sings two Elvis songs in the movie, Love Me and Love Me Tender. Yes, those are two different songs. Presley, Cage said, was his hero. Well, thank you very much. And whether you want to call it coincidence, fate, or something else, in 2002, Cage announced he had fallen in love with Presley, Lisa Marie Presley, Elvis's only daughter. We don't get much into Cage's private life here. It's his private life, after all, and we're mostly preoccupied with the theft of four rare comics from his home in Bel Air in 2000 like any reasonable person would be. But all of this figures into it. Not just Presley, but Presley's town of Memphis, Tennessee. And in another bit of divine providence, this soulful city wasn't just where Elvis was reared. It was where his most prized possession, Action Comics number 1, was said to be lurking in a safety deposit box. Memphis would be the place where Cage's love of comics would either be rekindled or, perhaps, lost forever. For iHeartRadio, this is Stealing Superman. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is Episode 4, The Memphis Affair. We go back and forth in time here, and I know it can be a little jarring, but so do comics. Heroes and villains chase one another backward and forward through dimensions, through different decades, trying to right past wrongs. In the original 1978 Superman film starring Christopher Reeve, Superman sees Lois Lane die, and he's so angry that he flies so fast around the Earth, he literally reverses the clock 
and brings Lois back to life. Anyway, we're not going far back, just to 1991. That's when the most prestigious auction house in America, Sotheby's, decided to take a bold step. They were going to legitimize the comic book collecting hobby by offering rare and vintage comics up for auction for the very first time in the company's storied history. Sotheby's was best known for auctions involving fine art or iconic sports cards or movie memorabilia. As a matter of fact, they may have inadvertently ushered in the modern era of art theft. When one of their art auctions in 1958 drew a lot of publicity over the staggering prices, it alerted thieves to the potential gold mines hanging on walls. Now, people have always stolen art, but getting itemized lists of what would be best to steal certainly motivated some people. But comics? Comics were different. This was the early 1990s. The industry had gotten some respectability with 80s hits like Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns and Alan Moore's Watchmen, but we weren't yet in the Marvel Cinematic Universe era. James Cameron's Spider-Man was tangled in a web of rights issues. A Fantastic Four movie was filmed but never released. B-movie king Roger Corman made a no-budget schlockfest just to avoid losing his rights to the characters. Newspapers still started comic stories with Bam, Zap, and Pow, an homage to the old Adam West Batman series that hadn't aired in over 20 years. In the art world, only graffiti had less of a reputation than comics. So yes, Sotheby's deigning to offer comics was perceived as a big deal. And the star of their second show in 1992 in New York was Action Comics number one, the first appearance of Superman. Now and forever, the most desired comic in the world. The same copy that would eventually wind up in Cage's hands, and then in the hands of a thief. But today, in September, it could wind up with anyone, so long as they were the highest bidder. Keep in mind that there simply weren't as many high-end collectors of comics then as there are now. Nor were there million-dollar price tags attached to rare books to entice people to part with theirs. Seeing an action number one for sale was a rare occurrence, like seeing J.D. Salinger in the frozen food aisle rare. So people took lots of photographs. So did Sotheby's, which printed an entire catalog of all their comic book treasures. The fact that they took a very detailed, very precise series of photos of this action number one will make all the difference in the world later in this story. And yeah, I will remind you when it's time. But in the moment, people were simply amazed the comic was here at all. Not only because it was an action number one, but an action number one in excellent condition bone white pages, a bright cover. A number of collectors and dealers were there in person. If you couldn't make it in person, you could bid over the phone. But you'd come if you could, if only to get a glimpse of comic book history. I was very excited, but I was sick as a dog. And I sat in the back row and I had dark shades on and wasn't feeling well at all. I had the flu, and I was just excited to get it and get it over with and get out of there. That's Bill Hughes. 
Bill's been a collector and dealer for over four decades. He owns Vintage Collectibles, a business based in Texas. In Sotheby's, he saw the hobby changing. More money coming in. The books being sold through auction houses meant more attention. More press attention. And with more attention came more demand. The financial component of comics collecting was about to take a huge leap forward. And Bill believed he could see a quick return on his investment for an action number one, even if he needed to make a major play. Oh, yeah. I mean, at that time, it wasn't like I was wealthy. Usually I would get into one big item at a time. You know, I didn't have the money to inventory and hang on to numerous six-figure items at once. So it was a big deal for me. I mean, I kind of put that money together. I was prepared, by the way, to go to 120000 at the time. That was my limit. Now, not all auctions build up to the item that's getting the most attention. Some might even put up lots in alphabetical order. Bill's memory isn't perfect, but he thinks that's what happened with the action number one that it was one of the first comics up for bid, rather than the last. No, because I bought the action comics number seven after that as well, and some other lots. So no, I'm trying to think if it was alphabetical, because I know I bought some lots that were later on in the auction, for sure. So the action number one came up early. And that was fine by Bill, since he had the flu and just wanted to get out as quickly as possible. Here's how Sotheby's described it in their catalog. Action Comics number one comic book, June 1938. DC Comics, featuring the very first appearance of Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster's legendary character, Superman. Arguably the most imitated character of all time. Near mint condition, this copy has interior pages with slight tanning on the edges, with the center portion of interior pages creamy white. Minor vertical printer's ink tracing lines on three interior pages with a handcrafted lacquered custom fit box. Historically, this is the most important comic book ever printed. It was like getting a sales pitch from a waiter on an expensive bottle of wine. Who wouldn't spend a bundle on that? When the comic was ushered out, it drew a lot of attention right away. A lot of people wanted that comic, but only a handful of people could afford to want the comic. There were several bidders. Obviously, with most auctions, you'll see a lot of spirited bidding at the beginning. And then, you know, when the numbers start getting a little more intense, you know, then it dwindles and becomes a lot of times, you know, just headbutting between two people. On and on it went. Remember, at the time, and even now, it's not common to see an action number one come up for sale. Bill didn't know the next time he'd see one, or what its condition might be. So he kept bidding, and bidding, until the amount reached $75,000. Adrenaline was coursing through his aching body. And then Bill waited for the other bidder to pipe up. But he didn't. Just like that, Bill had set a world record for buying a comic book. With the 10% buyer's premium, it came to $82,500. And normally, Bill would have loved the inevitable press attention. 
but not today. I was sitting with a friend of mine, and I just remember we high-fived, and like I said, we were in the very back row, and that was that. And I was feeling too poorly to even respond to media requests. There were people there that wanted to interview me, and I just said, oh, I gotta, I gotta go. I just wasn't feeling good. Well, maybe not with all the congestion, but in terms of doing what he had set out to do, Bill was feeling pretty good. He now owned an action number one in fantastic condition, which fewer than 10 people in the world can say. The question was, what happens when you're in New York and need to return home, which at the time was in Las Vegas, with the world's most expensive comic? You don't check it as part of your luggage, do you? I just stick it in my little briefcase and take it with me. I mean, that's how I've always done it. I just took that little handful of comics with me on the plane and flew back. He didn't look for a buyer right away. This was a kind of holy grail. It was something to bask in. He wanted to let it appreciate in value. I was letting it appreciate and I was enjoying having it and took pictures and had some fun with it. A few years later, Bill found a buyer, a fellow dealer, who got it into the hands of Stephen Fischler, Cage's comic book dealer. The whole story really starts right here, in a Sotheby's bedroom, where Bill Hughes, who's got the flu, grabs the action number one, which eventually finds its way to Nicolas Cage. Bill, by the way, didn't know about Cage's stolen comics at the time it happened in 2000. That was still on the hush-hush. But when he eventually did find out, he wasn't too surprised. It's not surprising that they were stolen from these wealthy gentlemen because these are people that like to use their highlights from their collections as conversation pieces and, you know, particularly at parties and whatnot, kind of show them off. When you, you know, go out of your way to share the value and show the actual item to numerous people, you know, you almost invite trouble. But Bill, who's been in the collecting game a long time, can conceive of one way they could have found their way back into the market. Like, why would someone not sell it? Or you could deface it and change the appearance of it so it doesn't appear to be the same comic and just sell it for a ton of money, even though a lot less than it was worth at the time, but still a lot of money, easily. And probably no one would think twice if it was defaced in some way to where it appeared to be a totally different, because obviously there's quite a few copies out there. Altered. That's interesting. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. In 2002, Los Angeles art detective Donald Harisic had a cold trail. He had interviewed Cage's employees and party guests. He'd spoken to dealers and kept an eye out for any sign of the books. Others had sworn they knew someone who knew something, who knew someone who had seen the action number one. But even if they had, 
There was no telling whether it was Cage's copy. People wanted to be helpful, but the books were gone with the wind. The only thing Harisik had to go on was the fact that the sale of an action number one would almost definitely make noise in the collector's market. You couldn't really sell a comic like that without a buyer asking a lot of questions. Where did it come from? Why are you selling? Who owned it before you did? It's all the stuff a seller like Sotheby's didn't have to worry about because their reputation preceded them. By and large, you know what you're getting from a major auction house. They'll stand behind their items. That's also why it was highly unlikely Cage's copy would ever find its way back to Sotheby's. The thief would be asked too many questions. If you really wanted to sell a stolen action number one, you try to do it as quietly as you possibly could. But being quiet can make a lot of noise. Harisik got another tip, and this one felt different. Someone in Memphis was offering a copy of Action Comics number one on the sly. This person wasn't looking to go through the normal channels of a Sotheby's or eBay. They wanted a cash transaction. How suspicious. If Sotheby's represented the ideal way to legitimately sell the comic, a random dude in Memphis offering it to cash buyers represented the most bizarre. It was too peculiar to ignore. So Harisik hopped on a plane from Los Angeles to Memphis. If this was Cage's copy, it made a certain amount of sense. You would never want to steal a book in California and try to sell it there. You'd want to go somewhere, anywhere else. When he arrived in Memphis, Harisik met with detectives of the Memphis Police Department. They had a suspect in mind who we'll refer to as Lex. Because why not? Lex had been peddling Action Number no. 1 and other rare comics around town and via online classified sections. It certainly looked as though he had the real thing. Police had also been able to establish Lex had a safety deposit box at a local bank. This was where he had possibly shown the rare books to prospective customers. It was a very clean operation. Harisik and the Memphis PD requested a search warrant for the safety deposit box. He believed this could conceivably be Cage's copy and a chance to solve a theft for one of the most famous people in the country. It would mean more attention for the LAPD's art detail, which was always criminally understaffed. Harisik had perhaps one partner at a time. And if this was the action number one, then Lex could possibly lead them to the others, the detective number 27 and detective number one. Get him in a room and sweat him out under the lamp with the adjustable arm. Maybe Lex would even get a break for telling them what he knew. Harisik and the Memphis PD believed they had enough probable cause to get the search warrant and a judge agreed. It was another step closer to figuring all of this out. On this fine day in Memphis, Harisik and Memphis police walked into the bank and produced a search warrant and were then led into a secure room. And while these boxes usually need two keys, the bank manager typically has a master set. The whole let's open it together thing is kind of theatrics. 
Inside of the privacy room, the key was slipped into the lock and the lid swung on its hinge. It was sort of like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Harisik and the others peered inside. This could be it. The end. And this would be a good time for a fake out. That the box turned out to be empty and that the cops would leave dejected. But that's not what happened. What stared back at them was in Action Comics number one. Case closed. Harisik had solved plenty of art thefts, had recovered more than $31 million in art over the past several years, had found some Peanuts animation cells stolen from animator Bill Melendez, 7,500 cells taken from his offices by the company Handyman. He'd even found these Scarecrow's tap shoes from The Wizard of Oz. But this was something else, a whole new level of cultural archaeology. The cops gently picked up the book to get a closer look. It was, as most rare comics were, wrapped in a plastic comic bag to protect it from dust and fingerprints. They examined the cover. It was all there. Superman hoisting a car directly over his head. People fleeing the scene. In the lower left was the infamous hysterical man, hands clasped at his temples like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone. Beads of sweat ran down his forehead. He sure was scared and... Wait. Where were the beads of sweat? Now, it's possible Harisik and the others didn't notice this right away. It might not have been until later. But if you knew action number one backward and forward, you'd be able to spot inconsistencies. Like the fact the manic screaming man running away from Superman on the cover wasn't sweating. He was always sweating. Since the issue was first printed in 1938, he had been sweating. He was afraid Superman was going to toss a car at him. It would make anyone hysterical. But not this guy. At least, not this version of this guy. So had someone damaged the comic? Or had someone done something even more sinister? Alter it so it couldn't be positively identified as cages? Why erase beads of sweat? That seemed more like a printing error than any subterfuge. Alright, so maybe this copy was a little bit of an anomaly. If anything, something as distinctive as lacking those sweat beads would mean that if Cage or Fischler could prove his copy had the same defect, then they'd have a match. The cops opted to gently remove the comic from its protective bag. To their eyes, it still looked okay. They exchanged glances. Maybe this was the one. Maybe the bus that would land Harisik back in the pages of the Los Angeles Times as the country's only art cup. The case that the Memphis PD could share some of the glory with. But then they began turning the pages. And they didn't see Superman. Not anywhere. Granted, he was only in 12 pages of the comic, sharing space with stories no one remembers. But he wasn't anywhere. There weren't any illustrations. Instead, the cops saw photographs of women clad in lingerie. The entire interior was a lingerie catalog. And if the inside was a lingerie catalog, that meant the cover was something else entirely. 
They quickly figured it out. Lex had found an image of action number one online, saved it, and printed it out as a color copy. And it was a good copy. But in the process, the beads of sweat on the guy freaking out didn't register on the printer. They were lost in the translation from digital image to hard copy. Lex was busted. The scam was too simple. When he found an interested party, he told them to never, ever remove the comic from its protective bag, since exposing it to air might cause the ancient pages to turn brittle. If it worked, that might have bought Lex enough time to take off before being found out. This action number one was inside a Fredericks of Hollywood or Victoria's Secret catalog. Harisik had seen this before. A collector in Bel Air, Cage's neck of the woods, once bought a painting by artist Ander Zorn for $500,000. Someone stole it, but left something behind. A giant photograph of the painting, which the family didn't detect for some time. Not until one of them touched it and realized it had no texture. In this case, the collector's butler did it. Swiped the real thing for one he had blown up in a photo lab. Clever enough, but it turns out that it's exceptionally difficult to counterfeit a comic book. This wasn't the first time someone tried. The Mafia, which loved to traffic in illicit goods, floated the idea. We know because the FBI once put wiretaps on the phones of mobster Paul Castellano and his associates. In the 1980s, Castellano was the boss of the Gambino crime family in New York City. They speculated that counterfeiting comics would be brilliant because no one else was doing it. But Castellano didn't get a chance to test his idea out. Big Paul, as he was known, was executed in the street by other mobsters in 1985. To do it convincingly would be a nearly impossible task. This isn't one image on canvas, like a painting. This is 64 pages, each one having to be identical in size, color, ink, and paper quality to the one produced in 1938. Now, these scams persist even today in an era where comics are graded and sealed. Kick around on Facebook long enough and you might come across a copy of Action Number no. 1, Superman Number no. 1, or others that look very convincing. But they're not the real deal. They're usually reprints or what DC Comics called famous first editions in the 1970s. The outer cover indicates it's a modern book, but if a scammer takes that off, the inside more or less looks like the real thing. But they were also oversized by a few inches, both vertically and horizontally. So it wasn't Cage's copy, just a small-time con from a small-time con man. And so Harisik returned to Los Angeles. But that wasn't the end of the Memphis story. Not exactly. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Even though what was looking to be a promising lead for the Action Comics number one was a bust, 2002 was still a very eventful year for Nicolas Cage. There had been a second break in the comic thefts case, a former employee who was arrested for stealing from the actor. But when that shook out, all the man had taken were some watches, albeit some very expensive watches, and some booze. Not only didn't he take any comics, he wasn't under Cage's employ when the comics were stolen. In a separate incident, Cage had a Porsche stolen. That one was found at the bottom of a lake in the Ozarks, $100,000 down the drain. In light of the other incidents, maybe he wondered if the same fate would greet his comics, someone panicking and getting rid of them permanently. That was two dead ends in the comic world, but professionally, Cage was doing well. He starred in Adaptation, an irreverent comedy about twin brothers and screenwriters trying to adapt The Orchid Thief, a true story about a horticulturist who steals rare and valuable orchids. The film is fictional, but Cage got a lot of positive attention for his dual roles. He was even nominated for a Best Actor Academy Award. He was going to start shooting Gone in 60 Seconds, a car theft movie with Angelina Jolie. Heists were apparently not something he could get away from. Or crimes, for that matter. One movie he was set to make but never did was called Backup, about a cop who comes back from the dead to solve his own murder. He was even getting set to direct his first feature film, Sonny, about a male hustler with James Franco. The last big professional shift was departing from his longtime manager, a man named Jerry Harrington. While Cage was doing well, he hadn't been doing face-off and con-air well, and maybe wanted a fresh pair of eyes looking at his choices. The split may not have been amicable because Jerry believed Cage owed him some commissions for all of his highly paid acting gigs. That marked one separation, but there was also one union, to Lisa Marie Presley. In August of that year, the long-standing Elvis fan had married Elvis's daughter. There was something to the idea that Cage was undergoing a huge paradigm shift in his life. New marriage, new management, and new hobbies. Or no more old hobbies. Cage announced he was going to sell his comic book collection. His entire comic book collection. And the reason was interesting. Here's Bill Hughes again. I was told that when he got involved with Lisa Marie, when they were married for a year or whatever, she hated the comics and wanted to see the comics go. And a year later, she was gone and the comics were gone. She didn't like the comic book. She said, get rid of them or get rid of me and whatever. So he got rid of the comics and the marriage didn't last anyways. But that's just what I was told. Hundreds of rare and exceptional issues he had spent years building up were going to be put up for auction via Heritage, one of the industry's leading auction houses. And the person who helped broker the deal was Bill Hughes. Many of them were slabbed in CGC holders, those hard plastic cases that guarantee a comic's condition. Bill decided which one stood to benefit the most from that additional provenance. And because Cage was so famous, the CGC label would make mention that the copy up for sale came from the collection of Nicolas Cage. Whether he desired it or not, he had become one of the more notable collectors in the hobby. 
And maybe the fact that these books were once cages could mean a little extra money. Bill Hughes helped arrange this massive comic book dump when the dealer he worked for, known as The Mint, partnered with Heritage. The idea was Cage could have twice the promotional power, as well as the client lists of the two instead of just one dealer. It was like a superhero team-up, only the team would get a percentage of the sales. While there were hundreds of books, there were a few Cage couldn't bear to part with. Not even for Lisa Marie, if you believe that story. His horror comics. Ron had told me at the time that Cage didn't want to let go of his horror comics, that he had frames on his walls, special frames made to house each comic book down a long hallway. I'd never been to his house, so I can only mentally visualize it. But he said there were 101 frames, and that's where the Action One was housed during the party at his home when it was stolen. But after he had given up the comics for auction, that he had kept a 101 horror comics that he had in those frames down this long hallway at his home. The custom frames that had once held the rarest comics in the world, that had gone empty when they were stolen, were now being filled with horror comics. The old EC books that were once the subject of Senate subcommittee hearings in the 1950s for being too violent were now Nicolas Cage's wallpaper. For some extra pomp and circumstance, the non-horror comics were sold at Dallas Comic-Con, a three-day gathering of the biggest dealers and fans in Texas. Heritage was located there, and a con seemed well-suited for such a high-profile sale. If one phase of Cage's comic collecting started in Sotheby's back in 1992, it ended at another auction in 2002. One by one, the comics went under the gavel, and Cage's cash register kept ringing. A copy of All-Star Comics number 3 went for $125,500. It was thought to be worth just $45,000. A copy of Detective Comics number 38, the first appearance of Robin, the Boy Wonder, went for $120,750. That was nearly three times what it was estimated to be worth in price guides. The Nicolas Cage effect was apparently real. It always adds value. When, when Stan Lee started letting go of some of his Marvel comics, also at Heritage, they went for huge numbers. They were very poor quality at the time, and Stan Lee had kept back his better copies and had just offered up his lesser copies first. Of course, he autographed them, and they went for huge numbers at the time, what was considered to be very aggressive numbers at the time. And it was just because of his affiliation. I mean, the fact that they were part of his collection personally. Same with Cage, the, the books brought premiums for sure. Cage offered copies of Amazing Fantasy number 15, X-Men number one, Green Lantern number one. It was a collector's paradise. And on it went until over $1.6 million had been spent on his books well, his former books. The overall auction, which also included comics from other sellers, brought in 5.2 million total, a new record for a comic auction. Cage had likely drawn interest even in books that didn't belong to him. As for that Lisa Marie story where she admonished him to get rid of his books, well, anything's possible. 
But we have to mention what Cage himself gave as the reason for why he decided to part with his vast collection. And it probably didn't have much to do with money. Sure, $1.6 million is a fortune, but Cage was being paid $20 million for Gone in 60 Seconds. This wasn't someone finding some books in an attic. He probably didn't have to sell them. It was because his four best comics had been stolen. And despite the best efforts of the LAPD and one close call in Memphis, it didn't seem like they were going to ever find their way back to him. It hurt. He decided that it was time to part ways with the hobby that he had once enjoyed. What good were having comics if they had to be under armed security? Where was the fun in that? When asked about it at the time, Cage gave an answer that hinted at this. Sometimes, he said, the things you own end up owning you, and that it was time to stop worshipping false idols. The Cage and Presley union lasted just 108 days. Reportedly, Cage threw Presley's $56,000 engagement ring into the ocean. Cage hired divers to try and find it, but with no luck. So he replaced it, going from a six-carat to a 10-carat ring. But ultimately, it just wasn't meant to be. It was a strange year. The comic auction came in November toward the end, and it held one final surprise for anyone following this labyrinth mystery. Among the hundreds of comics auctioned off at the Dallas Comic-Con that belonged to Nicolas Cage was Action Comics number one. Now, where had that come from? And more importantly, why is a story this weird not a movie already? The heist of Nicolas Cage's Superman stash. Well, it is. Someone made it. But you'll probably never see it. For reasons you'll never believe. That's next time on Stealing Superman. Stealing Superman is written by Jake Rawson. Sound design, scoring, and mixing by Josh Fisher. Additional editing by Jonathan Washington. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Mixing and mastering by Bahid Frazier. Additional voices by Ruthie Stevens and Zarin Burnett. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson and Austin Thompson. With production support from Lulu Phillip. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our executive producer is Jason English. And I'm your host, Dana Schwartz. If you're enjoying this show, check out Haleywood and Noble Blood, and give us a nice review. We'll see you next week. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. He was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.